Welcome to the Voice for Israel podcast for May 14th, 2020. Visit us at voiceforisrael.com and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and other fine podcast services. I'm your host, Peter Reitzis in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Our guest today is Anat Sultan Dadan, Consul General of Israel to the Southeastern United States. Consul General Sultan Dadan joined the Israeli Diplomatic Corps in 2004. She has extensive experience working for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and has held various posts and positions in Israel and abroad. Welcome to the Voice for Israel podcast, Consul General. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you for having me. It is a true honor. Thank you for the work that you do. Let's start with something fun. How about we start with something fun and then we'll end with something fun. So how has your family adjusted to life in the United States and what do you miss most about Israel? Well, um, we have adjusted, I would say, on the whole, very well. We are so very happy to be here, and I think so fortunate to have an opportunity to be posted to such a wonderful part of the United States, where everyone speaks of Southern hospitality, and we actually are fortunate enough to get to experience it. So it's definitely been our experience. We've been very warmly received And what we miss in Israel, I would say, beyond uh, the extended families, is probably just the Israeli nature, which I think is a is a very unique one. And anyone who's ever visited Israel would know what I'm uh, what I'm talking about. What at times can be perceived a a rude nature, and that we are very direct in saying what we what we mean without beating around the bush i think that that israeli character is something that that has great advantages as well and uh, something that um, that when abroad i miss that kind of uh, communication sometimes so I, I know that your consulate is in atlanta and what is the role of the consul general and what are your plans and aspirations as consul general of israel to the southeastern united states So our consulate is based in Atlanta. It is officially Israel's consulate to the Southeast U.S., but the Southeast U.S. in our distribution of of states among the consulates in the U.S. for us constitutes the state of Georgia, North and South Carolina, West Virginia, Missouri, Kentucky, and Tennessee. And in all those seven states, we are tasked with promoting Israel's bilateral relations with the states in our region on the many different levels that we enjoy relations with, be it on the political level, on the economic level, cultural, academic, our outreach and relationship with the the different communities in our region, the very important ones being, for example, the African-American community, the evangelical uh, Christian community, and of course, the Jewish community, which for any Israeli mission around the world is a goal in and of itself to maintain and strengthen that relationship between Israel and the Jewish community. That is awesome. And I, I was on a Zoom call with you this week, which was really cool. Uh, a lot of you, so you, you've been doing the the rounds and the Jewish community's been very excited to to speak with you on Zoom and to hear from you. And I heard you say that you're working on a definition of anti-Semitism being adopted at the state level. And I believe you said the definition you support is from the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, also known as the IHRA. So let me read that, that 
that definition, and then I want to ask you what what you're doing on, on that end. So the definition reads, quote, anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed towards Jewish or non-Jewish in individuals and or their property towards Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. Can you tell us what you're doing with that definition? Yes, Peter. So thank you for that. And I have to say that there is another very important component to that IRA working definition of anti-Semitism, and that is the illustrations that it provides, because those illustrations give a very clear view of what constitutes anti-Semitism, because we see that sometimes people, by choice or not, refuse to call things for what they are. And this working definition really allows a very good and clear framework in which one can discuss what is anti-Semitism. And this is something that it is an international alliance of which the United States is a member country as well. And the State Department, the American State Department and Department of Education work with this anti-Semitism working definition. But on a state level, we would like to see this definition adopted as well, because we think that it does provide a very important framework in order to have a discussion about anti-Semitism. We feel that, uh, unfortunately, with anti-Semitism and expressions of anti-Semitism on the rise globally in the United States as well, we feel that it is very important to have those conversations and to better understand what exactly falls under anti-Semitism, because you need to recognize it where it is in order to begin to address it. I couldn't agree more. And a few of those examples, and we're, we're going to link to this definition at voicevisual.com, but a few of those examples are drawing con comparisons of contemporary Israeli policy to that of the Nazis, holding Jews collectively responsible for the actions of the state of Israel, uh, accusing Jews as a people of being responsible for real or imagined wrongdoing committed by a single Jewish person or group, or even for acts committed by non-Jews. So what states are you working on with this definition? Yeah, I will also add something um, that uh, sadly, now during this era of COVID-19, anti-Semitism has taken on a new face as well, because we see so many expressions of anti-Semitism around the world, including in the United States, with different conspiracy theories being spread on social media and other forms of media with really outrageous allegations and conspiracy theories eh, that somehow the Jewish people are benefiting from from this virus that eh, that Israel is benefiting or or spreading eh, this virus and i think that now it is as clear as ever that this danger of anti-Semitism must be addressed because we all know that these expressions of hate and this incitement ultimately leads also to very dangerous uh, situations. With regards to, to your question, what we are working on at the consulate with regards to trying to promote the adoption 
of the IRA working definition on anti-Semitism on a state level is that we are trying to do so together with other consulates whose countries are also uh, members uh, of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance and whose countries have also adopted this working definition. And that, I think, is important because I think that when addressing anti-Semitism and when combating anti-Semitism, I think it is very important to understand that this is not a task to be left to, to the Jews or to Israel, the nation state of the Jewish people. It is of concern to us, of course, but it is of concern to the inter international community. And that is why we would like to promote this initiative that we're working on together with other members of the international community. That, that is really interesting. And I, I just heard a, a, an interview with a feminist who was being asked about the Me Too movement. And she said, look, you should stop asking just as feminists. You got to ask everybody. Sexual assault is something that's not just for feminists to talk about. It's for everybody to talk about. And it, it sounds like you're saying something similar, that anti-Semitism yeah. is not just for Jews. It's for everyone to talk about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the same goes for other expressions of hate. The same goes for racism, when it cannot be just up to the targets of that racism to fight against it or to any other expression or sort of discrimination of hate. I think that it is important to partner and for the wider community to fight against any such expressions. So I, I want to share with you very related to this definition of anti-Semitism that about a year ago, I attended a workshop on anti-Semitism that was hosted by a Jewish social justice organization here in North Carolina. And the presenters repeatedly put forth the position that anti-Semitism is based in white nationalism and white supremacy, as if to say all anti-Semitism derives from white nationalism. And after a number of us audience members pushed back and expressed concern about this politicization of anti-Semitism, the presenters then reluctantly acknowledged that left-wing anti-Semitism does actually exist, but they greatly minimized it and suggested that left-wing anti-Semitism is really not a real problem. I mean, do you agree? Should, should we only be concerned about right-wing anti-Semitism or should we be concerned about anti-Semitism from the right and the left? Well, I think there is no doubt that anti-Semitism, sadly, is not confined to one specific group. We are seeing uh, expressions from the right, from the left, and I think that the need to address it, it cannot be limited to where it is coming from. We need to address it wherever it is, and we definitely cannot limit ourselves to just one form or one direction that it is coming from, because unfortunately, that just does not reflect reality. This is the Voice for Israel podcast. Our guest today is Anat Sultan Dadan, who is Consul General of Israel to the Southeastern United States. So I was at a meeting at a local synagogue, and I, I won't say which one, and members of the synagogue were discussing Israel. 
And I mentioned my personal belief in a two-state solution. And I was quickly dismissed by some, not all, for supporting a two-state solution. And I was informed that supporting a two-state solution is some form of white nationalism and a Trump position. What do you make of this? And what should those of us who love Israel do to support Israel at our local Jewish institutions? Well, I think it is no secret that Israel receives criticism from some within the Jewish community, of course, from from some outside uh, the community. And criticism is fine, as long as one can still have a discussion that respects also, in this case, Israel's legitimacy and our right as a people to our own self-determination. And if you accept that premise, then we can have a discussion. I think that for, for anyone who does not accept our legitimacy or our right to exist, that is where there really is no ground for conversation. I think that with the majority, you refer to a synagogue, I think that with the majority of our brothers and sisters in the diaspora, there is a conversation to be had. We have differences of opinion in Israel as well, and that is fine. We take great pride, and we should take great pride in the freedom of expression, in freedom of speech in in Israel. And that same conversation and same differences of opinion we can have with our brothers and sisters in the diaspora as well, specifically with regards to the question of a two-state solution, this is something that the Palestinians themselves are claiming to be seeking. I have to say that today is exactly 72 years since Israel declared its independence. And today is when the Palestinians themselves could have declared their own independence and statehood um, had they not rejected the United Nations partition plan that then offered them a state. Ultimately, it will be up to the Palestinians to make a choice on their future, a choice which so far they have not they have not made. And I think that in our discussions, be it within the Jewish community or outside the Jewish community, we do need to provide the, the context and the history, what it is that has brought us thus far, and what realistically can be done in order to reach a solution. And I think that in any given future solution, both sides will have to make compromises. It is ultimately the interest of both sides to reach a solution, to reach an agreement. This is something that we have done in the past with 40 years ago in our signing of a peace agreement with Egypt, 25 years ago in a signing of a peace agreement with the Kingdom of Jordan. It is something that the Israeli government is keen to reach also with the Palestinians, but we will need to have that same wanting on the side of the Palestinians as well. You were such a great guest because you led me into my next question, which you just (laughs) partially answered. Um, But I'm going to ask the question anyway. And this is a big question, I know. But why do you think there is not peace between Israel and the Palestinians? 
I think that sadly, people often, when they uh, when they discuss the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, they discuss different matters, whether it's refugees or Jerusalem or settlements or borders. But the sad reality is that until now, there has been a Palestinian refusal to recognize Israel's legitimacy in any borders, a Palestinian refusal to accept Israel as the legitimate nation state of the Jewish people, as a people entitled to their own self-determination. And I think that that is what lies at the core of this conflict. There's so much I can ask you about that, but let me just ask you one follow-up question. Um, When I was preparing for this interview, I I noticed that Mahmoud Abbas, president of the Palestinian Authority, was elected back in 2005 to a four-year term. And now Abbas is serving his 15th year of a four-year term. Do you think something – like, do the Palestinians need to hold an election? Do you think – the fact that they elected a leader in 2005 and haven't re-elected a leader since then, does that have anything to do with this stalemate? I think that ultimately it is up to the Palestinians to choose their leadership, and it will be up to their leadership, whether it is this leader or another leader, to make that decision. And that takes courage in leadership. And we saw that courage when we were able to sign a peace agreement with Egyptian President then Anwar Sadat. That was courageous leadership. King Hussein of Jordan, who signed a peace agreement with us, that was courageous leadership. Similarly, Israeli leaders have shown that courage. It will take that courageous leadership on the side of the Palestinians in order to reach any agreement. But I will add that the Palestinians today will not need to face the entire Arab world and explain why it is that they are proceeding towards a peace agreement with Israel because the world has changed and the Arab world has changed. And more and more, there is a realization of the benefit and the mutual interest in relations with Israel. Could you discuss a little more the growing positive relations that Israel has with some Arab leaders and nations? Yes, I think that in our region, we are seeing a shift and a change in alliances. This has been a gradual process that we have seen over a good few years now. And I think that it is due to several reasons, one of them being that The most significant threat to Israel by far is that of the Iranian regime and its fomenting of terror in the region and funding of of proxies, etc. But that significant threat to Israel is not just a threat to Israel. It is also a significant threat to others in the region. And in that, there is a common interest among Israel and others, but it is not just about common threats and how to face uh, common adversaries. It is also about opportunities. Just now, for example, with the COVID-19, 
different Gulf states have approached Israel. Our health sector, there was recently an article about the Sheba Medical Center that has been approached and shares its technologies and its know-how, for example, with regards to telemedicine that is assisting in treating patients with minimal exposure to the medical staff during this COVID-19 crisis. All of these opportunities for cooperation, be it in the health sector currently, but economic opportunities, opportunities for growth, I think that these are all bringing us closer together and creating, I think, many opportunities that I hope will be realized also in the future. That is really wonderful. So it sounds like you're saying that in the tragedy of this pandemic, that Israel and its neighbors are finding ways to work together to benefit each society. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I have to say uh, there has also been a rare occasion recently where Israel was actually commended by the United Nations for our cooperation with the Palestinians in fighting COVID-19 because we have provided different assistance to the Palestinians in uh, trying to ensure that they can better address this crisis with their people, be it through supplies but also with training, trying to ensure that that they can have control of this uh, of this situation, and so far that has proven uh, to be effective. And so uh, that is uh, something that Israel is cooperating with the Palestinians on within the region, but also, of course, on a much larger scale. Israel Prime Minister Netanyahu has just recently committed $60 million of Israeli contribution towards research, towards developing a a vaccine. There are several trials underway in Israel. And so I think that Israel is definitely playing a significant role within the international effort to combat this crisis. That's fantastic. You mentioned a few moments ago the threat of Iran. What policy would Israel like the USA and the world to take towards the threat of Iran? That is a very good question because Iran is indeed a very, very significant concern for Israel and, of course, for others because it does not just threaten Israel existentially, but it it threatens and destabilizes security in our region and beyond. We favor a, a diplomatic solution that will fully dismantle Iran's military nuclear program and one that will comprehensively address Iran's destabilizing activities in the region. The maximum pressure campaign that was mounted against Iran in the past and which is now being rebuilt remains, in our view, the most effective diplomatic tool against the Iranian aggression. We welcomed President Trump's decision to withdraw from the JCPOA in 2018. We think that this withdrawal um, has created an opportunity to confront the Iranian aggression in their uh, nuclear ambitions and fomenting of terror. And we would like to see the international community being decisive and joining in exerting that pressure 
in order to see the Iranian regime change direction. And what is your opinion of the White House peace plan that was released early in 2020? I think that this proposed peace plan is an excellent platform that will hopefully serve to promote direct negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians. I know that it is being received very seriously in Israel, and it has been discussed by Prime Minister Netanyahu and the American administration, but also by the head of Blue and White Party, Benny Gantz. We are soon to have a a sworn-in new government in place in Israel, one that will be able to also proceed towards an agreement with the Palestinians, because we would like a resolution to this conflict. But one has to take into account that even the most wonderful platform cannot create a peace agreement without the Palestinians showing up. And unfortunately, previous platforms and previous opportunities were not taken up by the Palestinians. The Palestinians chose to look the other way. I do hope that this time we will see the Palestinians step up in order for this peace plan to be able to to be promoted and uh, and fulfilled even if not word for word or letter by letter i think it is an excellent platform and one that could get us uh, to the goal of reaching an agreement provided both sides actually show up at the table we have yet to see the palestinians do so so how will or should Israel move forward towards peace and towards the White House peace plan during this time of COVID-19? I think that one does not rule out the other. Yes, the COVID-19 is a significant challenge that we are facing, that we are all facing. But as I mentioned, it does also provide opportunities for cooperation. And our quest for peace is not on pause just because we are battling this this virus. Just as those who seek our destruction have not taken a pause during this time, so too, we don't take a pause from our quest to peace. We would be more than willing to promote it when there is a, once the new government is, is sworn in, is in place in Israel. But we will need to see the other the other side come to the table as well. On April 21st, I was listening to National Public Radio, and a piece on Israel came on air. And the very first sentence of the piece stated, quote, COVID-19 is helping Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu stay in power in Israel. This NPR piece then went on to say, quote, Netanyahu declared a state of emergency. His corruption trial was postponed, and political rival Benny Gantz decided to abandon his center-left allies, break his promise to voters, and give Netanyahu a lifeline. This NPR segment ended by speaking with Palestinian negotiator Hanan Ashrari, who declared that Israel, quote, is a country that lives outside 
the law. And I'm going to insert the clip here. COVID-19 is helping Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu stay in power in Israel. Netanyahu declared a state of emergency. His corruption trial was postponed. And political rival Benny Gantz decided to abandon his center-left allies, break his promise to voters, and give Netanyahu a lifeline. Palestinian official Hanan Ashrawi. This is a country that lives outside the law. As Consul General, what are your thoughts about the media's severe bias against Israel? And how big of a problem is this? I will start just by saying that Israel has a democracy so robust that I would wish it for many other countries in the world, including our judicial system and our adherence to international law. I am happy to say that we are headed into a large coalition and a government that recognizes the needs of the hour. I think that is what responsible leadership does. And we see that both on Netanyahu's side and on Benny Gantz's side. With regards to uh, the media, This is sadly not a new phenomenon and not one that is limited to a specific channel or media. I think that we must continue to expect responsible journalism and one that actually reflects and provides the the full correct context of what is being portrayed. And when one is promoting an agenda or an opinion, then that should be presented as such, as an opinion. Opinion pieces are fully legitimate, but they should be presented as such, not as news pieces. There is a difference there. I think that uh, too often Israel has to deal with media that is very biased and non-reflective of reality, not a media that provides necessarily the news or uh, the full context. And uh, we can only continue to try to, to balance and to be alert and to call out whenever there is journalism taking place that is not professional or responsible journalism. You said that so well, and uh, it didn't occur to me until you said it, but that really did function as an opinion piece and not as a news piece. So I loved how you couched that. And I'm just going to share with you, after I got done listening to that full story, which was about two minutes long, you know, I walked away and I thought, there is, there's so much positive going on with how Israel is dealing with COVID-19. Um, for just one example, that during your recent elections, during this COVID-19 pandemic, 72% of Israelis who were under quarantine chose to vote in specially designed polling places places that were set up to safely accommodate those who were under quarantine. I mean, that's an amazingly strong statistic of a strong democracy, that 72% of Israelis who were under quarantine were able to safely vote. I mean, congratulations on that. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. And I think that uh, in many other ways, Israel contributes and will continue to contribute, uh, whether it's uh, within the context of combating COVID-19 or with regards to other global challenges. I think that Israel is often recognized, and rightly so, as the startup nation because of all the innovation 
and technological advances that are that are coming out of Israel. But more and more, Israel is looking to be an impact nation as well. And I think that in assuming a role and in providing different uh, solutions and assistance to address global global problems, I think that that is an important responsibility that Israel is proud to take part in as well. And I am proud as an American Jew of, of that fact. So thank you. You are listening to the Voice for Israel podcast. Our guest today is Anat Sultan Dudan, who is the Consul General in the Southeastern United States uh, for Israel. So let me ask you this. On April 16th, 2018, the Durham, North Carolina City Council passed the Israel Resolution making Durham the first city in the United States to boycott police training specifically with Israel. Durham had no plans to train their police in Israel. Anti-Israel activists who lobbied the Durham City Council grossly alleged that the training of police in Israel, quote, helps the police terrorize black and brown communities here in the U.S. What do you make of the extreme demonization of of Israel coming from the Durham City Council and from local anti-Israel activists? I think that it is unfortunate when... There are attempts to politicize and to tarnish what is, in this case, it is a very professional and mutually beneficial exchange, benefiting both law enforcement agencies. I think that it is not, it is, is it is sadly not the sole or first case of such politicization and decision-making that is just not based on facts or on reality, but on allegations that are either ignorant or intentionally misleading and misportraying reality. So as I promised the listeners, I'd like to end with just a few light or lighter questions, I I should say. You've been stationed around the world. Can you tell us something about an interesting experience you had as a diplomat in another country? Have you found support of Israel in places or in people that surprised you? I've been fortunate, I have to say, to, to find support in everywhere uh, that I've been uh, that I've been posted, be it in Africa, in Europe, uh, most recently in Australia, it is I think a uh, noteworthy and incredible that even literally oceans apart, there is such support uh, for Israel. I mentioned Australia, but also in the Pacific Islands, and I think that it it has to do with mutual interests and with common values and with a shared history that uh, that we share with with so many countries around the world interesting experience for for a diplomat i think that that could take up a more than one than one podcast for sure but i will i will mention one experience which i think it, for me being an israeli diplomat was rather exceptional and that is when I had the privilege 
to take part in our late president Shimon Peres visit to Berlin 10 years ago when he came to speak on International Holocaust Remembrance Day January 27th 10 years ago he came to speak in the Bundestag in the German parliament i think that for for an israeli president to stand at the heart of the German capital, in the German parliament, to wear a kippah and to address on behalf of the nation state of the Jewish people. That was a most moving and very, very meaningful moment. I think not just for me, I think for anyone who was fortunate enough to witness this, uh, this moment. Hearing you tell that story just gave me chills. And I've had people ask me to go to Germany with them over the years. And uh, I haven't gone. I don't know if I want to. I wasn't planning to say that to you, but um, it, what you shared just gave me chills. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Thank you. And I must say that we have such a strong relationship with Germany. Germany is an incredibly important and strong ally of Israel and of the Jewish people. And we are in constant conversation about the future. And Germany is fully committed to Israel's security and to ensuring the future of Israel and its security. But we also constantly engage in conversations about history and about the past. And I think that one can only look forward when acknowledging the past and uh, addressing that. And so I, I leave it to you whether to, whether to visit and where, where to visit, but I think that Germany it does have a lot to offer and there is a lot of importance in that conversation. You know, this brings up something that's been coming up in my personal life. I have children who are eight and 10, and we're trying to figure out the best way to speak with them about the Holocaust. And I've started speaking to my children a bit about World War II in general and haven't spoken directly about the Holocaust. Do you have any views on this that you would like to share? I think that as an Israeli, I, I have perhaps a, a different perspective because even my experience of growing up, Holocaust Remembrance Day in Israel is one that is, that is marked throughout Israel with a siren. And the remembrance activities take place throughout Israel, whether you are in kindergarten or in an old age home. And from a very young age, therefore, the Holocaust is something that is on the table. It is not to say that the content is not adapted according to, to the age, but it is a part of our makeup. It is a part of who we are. It is a part of what the state of Israel is about, about ensuring that the Jewish people will never again not have a state and an army to protect themselves. It is just an integral part of our identity. And so I think that for an Israeli, it's, it's an obvious that a Holocaust education 
starts as young as education starts. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to be thinking a lot about what you just said. See, I promised it was going to go light and then I got heavy on you. I'm sorry. All good. (laughs) All right. Just a few last questions. I have to ask, what is your favorite city in Israel and why? Well, I love Israel and I love the fact that in such a small piece of land, you have so many different cities with such different characteristics from from the north and and Mount Hermon, where you can even go skiing in the winter to to Elat in the south, where you can go scuba diving, really completely different worlds, all in one small country. But my favorite would have to be Jerusalem, because that is my childhood city. That is the city that my parents still live in. It's where I went to school and university. And it has, I think, a charm that no other city in the world can compete with. It is walking in history while being a part of everything that is modern day Israel. And I think that that dualism and, of course, the the, the multiculturalism of, of Jerusalem, it, it really does have a, so much fragrance and so much color and so much charm and beauty that, um, yeah, just speaking about it, I miss it. So do I. Um, <laughs> when, <laughs> when visiting Israel for the first time, where do you recommend going first? Well, I would have to say that pretty much depends on on what you're interested in. Tel Aviv and the beaches are always a wonderful option. They are full of life, but also beautiful beaches. Whether it's it's after the religion and the historic aspects, then I would head to to Jerusalem. Really, it would depend on what you're after. I think the great advantage of visiting Israel is that you can get everything done in a relatively short amount of time. Not to say that a short amount of time is sufficient to visit Israel, but in one day you can make it to Jerusalem and you can make it to Tel Aviv and you can make it to Haifa because um, everything is in a relatively close proximity. Last question for Anat Sultan Dadan, Consul General of Israel to the Southeastern United States. What is your favorite restaurant and favorite meal in Israel? Well, those would have to be two different things because my favorite meal would be at my parents' house. My dad is the absolute best cook and chef, in my opinion, in the world. And so that would be my my favorite uh, my favorite meal. But with regards to restaurants, I'm kind of biased as well, because in Israel, there is a, a very popular cafe chain uh, called Aroma, where you can not only get wonderful coffee, but you can also get amazing uh, salads and different fresh food, sandwiches, etc. And it's really almost on every street corner in Israel that you can find Aroma. I'm kind of biased because Aroma, uh, 22 years ago, is where I met my husband when it was one single coffee shop in Jerusalem. 
and that is where that is where we met. And so when we when we got married 21 years ago at the great synagogue in Jerusalem after the wedding, that is where we headed with all of our friends to that Aroma coffee coffee place in uh, in the heart of Jerusalem. And so we. Uh, I am a bit biased when it comes to that. They still have wonderful coffee and the most amazing fresh salads. But Israel, frankly, has incredible food, be it on the streets with the falafel, sabich, shawarma, all of the many different options on the street, and be it in the many, many coffee places, restaurants, etc. Good food really is in abundance in Israel. So I'll tell you real quickly, I'm a speech language pathologist. I'm also a person who stutters. And I was speaking to a friend of mine in Israel who stutters uh, because we're both very active in the stuttering world. And he's a vegan and he was telling me about being a vegan. And I said, oh, well, you live in Israel. That's the vegan capital of the world. Mm. And he said, really? I've never heard that. And I thought, (laughs) oh man, he doesn't even know how good he has it as a vegan. Right. Well, really, on there are so many vegan restaurants in Israel, but in any given restaurant, even one that is not vegan, you will find vegan dishes for sure. Yeah. Well, that is a light, fun place to leave it. You've been listening to the Voice for Israel podcast at voiceforisrael.com. And our guest today has been Anat Anat Sultan Dadan, who has heard me mispronounce her name several times. My apologies. (laughs) Consul General of Israel to the Southeastern United States. Thank you for being so generous with your time today. Thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for your support of Israel and of the important relationship between Israel and the United States. Thank you. 